0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So, Dad, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing really well, and I'm especially happy to be doing this with our guest, Michael Krasny, who, among other distinctions, which you'll be naming in a minute for us, Michael has been a real benefactor for me. When I was a very, very, very small frog in a very, very big pond, Michael was willing to have me on his very big radio show, which I'm endlessly grateful for.
0: Yeah, just as you said, Michael is the longtime host of the KQED Forum, a position he recently retired from after 28 years of award-winning work. With decades of experience in journalism and broadcasting, Michael has interviewed some of the most prominent figures of the past 50 years, including people like Maya Angelou, Cesar Chavez, Mike Tyson, which was one of my personal favorite interviews of his, President Jimmy Carter, Carl Sagan, and President Barack Obama. He was also a professor at San Francisco State University and has taught at a number of other institutes in the Bay Area, including Stanford and the University of San Francisco. Along the way, Michael's found the time to author a number of books as well, including Off Mike and Let There Be Laughter, and since retiring from the forum, has started his own podcast, Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. So Michael has been an absolute fixture in the Bay Area for the past 30 years, and it's a real privilege to have him on the show. So Michael, how are you
1: doing today? I'm doing okay. Glad to be here. One of the questions we often get from listeners, it's an ongoing topic, is how to navigate times of transition. And you've recently had to navigate a time of transition, stepping away from the forum and into your own excellent podcast. So just kind of wondering, to start with, even at a personal level, what have you found inside yourself that has helped you to make this transition?
2: I think the answer to that, Rick, is that I've found maybe what makes me feel most authentic, which I knew to some degree all along. You get to a certain age and stage in life, it's hard not to know that unless you're really deceiving yourself still, are you? I thought there are lots of things I can do in my retirement. Uh, one of the big ones, of course, is being with my granddaughter. Now I've got a new grandchild on the way and traveling. Pandemic put a bit of a kibosh on that. But I really thought I'd take up all kinds of different things like gardening and I'd learn how to do all kinds of different things, acquire a couple of different languages. You know what I discovered? I discovered I wanted to do the things I've always wanted to do. And that can't be true for a lot of people. (laughs) The things I was doing were things I really enjoyed. I mean, I enjoyed being a morning companion and broadcast journalist. I loved that and I loved teaching. And I was just getting to the point where a lot was overextended. I wasn't doing the writing I wanted to do. So the things that I had always done, writing, broadcasting, and teaching remain on my plate. As you said, I have a the podcast relatively new. It's Gray Matter with an E. By the way, there are other Gray Matter podcasts, less people confused. And for me, that made the transition a lot less difficult. The podcast is just once a week, so I'm not working nearly as hard as I did when I was doing a daily radio program. So that's the navigation. That's the sum of the navigation right there.
1: Has there been any shift of identity? That's one of the pluses and or minuses The people often report, that as they change from one life structure to another life structure, their identity tends to shift as well. And sometimes people welcome that. Sometimes they get to reclaim an identity that they had when they were young, but they've drifted from. Now they can go back to being, let's say, artistic or kind of looser, since they're no longer wearing the corporate suit of armor, you know, for the last 30 years. Other people, there's a wrenching loss of identity, like when children leave home and there's a a sense of who am I now. So here you are, you know, in this process. Have you experienced any shifts of identity?
2: I've had uh, an ambivalence about identity. I mean, on the one hand, I've kind of welcomed anonymity because I was a public figure and all that goes with that sometimes is not so welcome, though, you know, it's a kick to... The great thing about being on radio is people would maybe recognize my voice, but this is a face for radio, I used to say, so they didn't (laughs) necessarily identify me by my handsome features. The reality of what I encountered though was also missing that feeling of people knowing who I was. Even after just a year or so, I realized the difference and it's quantum. And you know, you're no longer, I mean, if I was famous, uh, I laughed when I retired because I kept seeing the word legend. And I remember interviewing Kirk Douglas who got angry at me for calling him a legend. Because he said legends were dead for the most part. And I said, no, Mr. Duffins, that's <laughs> not necessarily <laughs> true. And yet there was a sense of you are in a position of power, which I never thought of as power, but that's how it was perceived. And there was a lot of value placed on that by other people in terms of just my persona or who I was or what I did. And that stops and you lose something and there's no getting around it. But you have to kind of carve out a new sense of who you are. And that can be pretty challenging. That can be fun too.
1: One of the things that stands out too in your journey is curiosity. I think about you finding something interesting in just about anybody. Were you naturally curious as a person? And second, have you had to do little things inside your own mind to help yourself be interested in something? which, by the way, I consider one of the more useful skills in all kinds of ways, including in a long marriage. <laughs>
2: I'll go along with that. I think we both have uh, survived long marriages. Uh, that's right. It says something about our character, I hope, but also good luck and good fortune, <laughs> I suspect. It's because
1: of our son. That's, that's really the source of
2: my <laughs> long marriage. <laughs> Do you have children, Forrest?
1: No, no children for me. I have a, a wonderful partner. We are
0: not yet married, and we certainly have not produced any offspring yet.
2: <laughs> well, you've got all that ahead of you, is Yeah,
0: plenty of time, plenty of time.
2: You do have plenty of time. Uh, at least deceive yourself in thinking you have plenty of time. But, you know, I always think about how fast time moves, especially at this stage of life, but we don't have to go there. Let me just say, however, in response to Rick's questions, I have always had good Manifold curiosity about many many things. It served me pretty well, not only as the kind of broadcast journalism I did, but also as a professor of literature, because literature brings in so many different disciplines. But yes, there are things that just if they don't bore me, I find them not as interesting, or I'm not as curious about them. So the trick is, and the challenge is, kind of piquing your curiosity, you're finding where your curiosity can indeed be lifted or be elevated to some degree. The other thing is, it's not only curiosity, it's also creating a sense of curiosity when you need it. Because I just did another podcast, uh, and I was asked about this question on another level, and I was inclined to say, if you're not curious deeply, find where curiosity moves you or where it leads you. And also, remember that an interview of any kind, it's a performance. I mean, you're both performing now, and you both have to draw me out, add your own two cents when it's appropriate, and think about who your audience is, or like Kurt Vonnegut said, maybe your audience is strangers, but you have to be clear to that audience who arouse their curiosity. And it's all a part of what you do. How did you go about learning for the interviews that you had to
0: do? You're doing a lot of these. You're churning through broadcasts media, you're doing it often on a daily basis, you're talking to very big-time people, often a lot of pressure, a lot of listeners, how much prep would you do? And did you ever feel like you were actually over-prepared for something?
2: Not infrequently, I felt over-prepared. But you get as prepared as you feel you need to be. And I know that doesn't sound evasive, may sound evasive, but you get yourself not necessarily into a string of questions that you're going to follow one after the other, which I think is Sometimes a mistake because it takes away from the spontaneity. I feel like and this is not to make your vanity feel better or compliment you, but I feel like we're going into a conversation here as opposed to an interview. And that's much more uninhibiting and much more freeing in so many ways. But I felt almost anal retentive. Okay, throw so out a term your den is well acquainted with. You may be as well. I'm talking about, <laughs> about his clinical psychology studies. Not
0: not his personal experience, yeah, of course. Nah, I
2: didn't mean to imply anything <laughs> to that. So. I still wear a diaper. I mean, come on,
1: you know. <laughs> I don't believe it. Yeah, we're we're walking away from this one.
2: <laughs> if you still wear a diaper, I, I got a few years on you. I should be wearing a diaper.
1: <laughs> At either end of the lifespan, <laughs>
2: <laughs> Well, there is a diaper. <laughs> There's a lot of jokes about that, but I'll resist them. I think we are, though. <laughs> I can't speak for you. And I think, I keep thinking I'm in the final innings, but then I think, oh, wait a minute, maybe I'm in the on-deck circle. You know, a lot of baseball metaphors come to mind here and they do change your perspective. Ken Dykewald has a lot of valuable ways of seeing these supposed later years. He says, you know, you still need purpose. And when you're doing an interview and you're preparing for an interview, it can give you a real sense of purpose, almost raison d'etre, you know, a reason for existing and, I was driven to probably be overprepared most of the time, but I didn't use a lot of the things. And that's, that's the challenging part of it. You have to sift and winnow and exclude a lot of things. Because when I started out interviewing, I wanted to be the smartest kid in the room, and I wanted to show how much I had learned. And after a while, I thought, oh, this is not what I should be doing. I should be balancing mm. between you know, well, my role as an educator, where I do have a lot perhaps to share and dispense, And also learn from the person I'm interviewing, because that's the person who's in the eye here in the spotlight, not me.
1: It took me well into my 30s before I realized that I was just a natural therapist, and I had resisted surrendering to where the sweet spot, the home base of a number of natural inclinations and maybe talents had clustered. And I wonder about the ways in which some people swerve away from their natural calling. Because for some reason, they think that they should do something else. As I guess I wonder for you, may I ask how old were you when you started the Forum show? And were you a natural interviewer, interlocutor (laughs) from the beginning? How did you
2: get to there? Well, I should say, first of all, that there was a time when I thought I wanted to be a psychiatrist. I mean, I became... Very interested in psychoanalysis and took it quite seriously. I think I, I took a, a shift because um, being a psychiatrist meant being an MD. And I thought that was the only way I could please my father, who was a factory worker, but a frustrated doctor, I wanted desperately to be a doctor and wound up being a proletarian <laughs> factory worker. So for me, psychiatry initially was drawing me. And so was medicine, I thought, but It sounds kind of silly in retrospect, but I was in an anatomy class with a fetal pig, which was doused in formaldehyde, and the smell of formaldehyde and the idea of cutting up stuff and doing all this dissections and everything. This is not for you, Krasny. Uh, Uh Plus, I I managed to fall in love with Shakespeare. And then strange things happened. When I became a literature professor, I still had a yearning because I had published some things about politics. And I invented myself as an interviewer at a little station mm-hmm. uh, in Marin County, and I interviewed. Uh, I've written about this in a book called Off Mike, which Stanford Press published. I interviewed Gore Vidal, and that was what I called my baptism of fire, because he was a very difficult interview. He was intoxicated and anti-Semitic. Otherwise, it was a pure delight. Interview. Um, <laughs> no, I thought it would be delightful because you know he's a literary guy, and he's yeah, um, he was a lefty like I was at the time. Yeah. So there were a lot of things that drew me into that interview. But having gone through that, I thought, maybe this isn't for me. I had my doubts. But the show that I did weekly got some attention. Suddenly, I found myself in commercial radio, working for ABC. And that was not only interviewing. It was something called news talk radio, where you present an opinion. And I liked that. I, I felt like that was a calling. Hearted ways. Commercial radio was not for me. They said mm. it was too uh, too intellectual, too cerebral. I got those kind of handles on me, and uh, just good luck. Public radio, 1993, I began a career as a host of form. But you know, a lot of this is just kind of the way the dice fall. People have to realize that. I'm sure long term marriage, you can say this too. You know, I mean, that's why I say a lot of it's luck. So much of life is. I decided being blindsided in life, having Good fortune, something really that you would call good luck, but good luck comes from sometimes preparing through hard work and sometimes it's just opportunity That's you didn't know it was there.
1: So I'm going to ask you a totally weird question. <laughs> so I'm by no means a Shakespeare scholar. I mean, for me, any kind of reading in which I need to look up every fifth word kind of slows me down. Okay, but beyond all that. I remember Harold Bloom's book, you'll know the title. I think it's Shakespeare on the Invention of the Human, something like that, right?
2: That's, that's good enough. Yeah.
1: Okay. He goes through each one of the plays. Marvelous book. I appreciate the genius of Shakespeare. Okay, great. So Bloom kind of sort of has a favorite Shakespearean character. I think it's Falstaff. Among all the ones that would be, Bloom could be a Shakespearean character. It would be that one. Which one would you be? What's your natural, who would be fun to be if you could be a Shakespearean? character.
2: When I was a young man, of course, I identified with Hamlet for obvious reasons. You know, most young men, I think, probably identify with Hamlet. But as you get older, as I used to tell my students, you read Hamlet, you know, when you're even in your 40s or 50s, it's a very different play. And uh, it has a different impact on you. I have a lot, of, uh, a lot of empathy for Shylock, even though, you know, he's a terrible villain mm-hmm. character, but he's a, you know, he's a victim of antisemitism. At the same time, that there's no trying to uh, <laughs> cosmeticize that, as some Shakespeare scholars have tried to do.
1: One of the most useful, I believe, ideas I've ever heard, and I've reflected on it many times, I think came from Bloom, the notion of the anxiety of influence.
2: One of the central ideas, yes.
1: Yeah, you could definitely elaborate it. I mean, I know the headline and then the implications. I th- I've thought a lot about it at the clinical level, not so much at the level of generating literary text, people anxious about the influence of uh, Shakespeare, but how we manage the influences in our lives and come to terms with appreciating the beneficial influences, differentiating, finding ourselves, not being over-dominated, and not being almost adolescent in our rebelliousness against good influences and throwing the babies out with the bathwater, et cetera, et cetera. Could you maybe elaborate and illuminate and correct any misunderstandings I might
2: have here? Oh well, you just gave a very good encapsulation. Uh, and I congratulate you. Uh, Adam Bloom really made his reputation to some degree off the anxiety of influence. He was talking largely about literature and intertextuality, you know, the influence of other texts upon our texts. But you can translate it, as you just did beautifully into our lives and how anxiety informs so much of our lives and when you talk about, you know, fear about giving into impulses or fear about acting adolescent when you're an adult and you're supposed to be acting mature and responsibly and all of those acting infantile for that matter, all those things are a part of it, nicely rendered by you. Oh, that's interesting. And
1: you spoke of your father and I just, it's funny, I I imagine he's not with us any longer. I just felt a lot of compassion for him when you talked about him as a frustrated physician, his time in his place, maybe the role of anti-Semitism, et cetera. He ends up working in a factory A lot of talents unutilized. And his vision for you is a kind of influence, right? And then how do we manage that? My dad was more diffident about what he wanted me to be when I grew up. He was born a cowboy in North Dakota and ended up being a zoologist. And my mom, though, definitely (laughs) had a lot of influence. And I had to grapple with resisting her influence well into my 30s. And I made mistakes in part because I was over-resisting, you know, her influence.
2: Well, we come from obviously different backgrounds because my father was educated. My mother was not. She didn't make it through high school, you know, and I think ultimately they were pretty proud of me, Uh, but they didn't know how to show it. I was eager for them to at least emotionally translate that some way, but they weren't those kind of parents. My dad wasn't the kind of father who showed pride in his son. But here's an interesting little anecdote that you as a psychologist may want to comment on. Because as much as I venerated my father and loved him, my dad administered corporate punishment. He'd come home from a hard day at work, and he'd hear from my mother about how my mother was I don't know, emotionally fragile, how difficult her sons were. My father gave more corporal punishment to me because I was, I think, a little more ADD or livelier, or needed attention more as a kid. I'm not going to put myself on your couch here, but I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about this. I'm interviewing Lee Salk, famous psychologist and the brother of Jonas Salk. And we're talking about mating out punishment, corporal punishment to children. And I've never done, I've had two daughters, as I said, never believed in corporal punishment. And believe it's wrong. Simple equation. But my dad used to take the belt and have us sit across them. So I'm talking to Lee Salk. I said, you know, my dad hit us with a belt. I mean, I know it's abuse, and I know it's wrong, but I love my father. I venerated him, and I love and revere his memory. And Lisa said to me, your father was a brute. Those are his exact words. Your father was a brute. And I didn't want to accept that because my father, I felt, even though he never showed it, loved me. He was concerned about me, and I loved him. In fact, I adored him. So, you know, there's the complications Mm. of life and miniature, microcosmic, because there's so much of it that's ambivalent, the word I already, already used with you. Mm. It wasn't somebody no less than Freud who said, this is what the 20th century has brought us into, an age of ambivalence. You mentioned Bloom, an age of anxiety. Bloom was a kind of neo-Freudian, and he believed we were in an age of ambivalence too.
1: Well, it's so interesting, the twists and turns, And uh, my comment in part around anxiety of influence will have a definite Buddhist slant, so that's kind of a preview of where we might be going. What strikes me about that summary comment from Lee Salk is that it turned your father, a being with a mosaic with a thousand tiles, into a single essentialized thing, brute. And that's, Deeply problematic, that essentializing tendency that the brain has. It's simple. You know, looks like this or that, boom, duck. Centralize it as that. We reduce people to that one essentialized thing, and then the trouble really begins. We do that interpersonally on the fly, the brain does it automatically. It's a very efficient way to move through the Stone Age or Jurassic Park to draw these quick rapid essentializing conclusions about things that are actually processes made of hundreds, thousands of currents swirling together. Here's your dad, all these qualities and all his good intentions, which he thought should be expressed with a certain kind of punishment, which I'm not defending per se, but the problem is that essentializing. And then when we essentialize others as that entity, then for sure, we get anxious about their influence rather than being able to see them in a more complex way, drawing a page out of ecology and quantum physics, whatnot, and Buddhism, you know, where we see them as made of compounded elements that are related and changing. I could see you're about to jump in, so please do.
2: No, I was just thinking about how nuanced from what you're saying, things ought to be seen, how multidimensional. When I began my career in broadcasting, I loved the idea of having people on the air who I politically disagreed with. I found it very challenging, and I wanted to challenge them. One of the things that eventually led to my leaving was the fact that I felt a good deal of inner pressure. It wasn't coming to me from other sources, but not to do those kinds of things, but to realize how polarized things became and not to be mm. influenced by the idea of greatness as much as I w- was in the past.
0: As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OSO1 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off, oneskin.co, with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy The Dr. John Delaney Show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast. But while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice complement to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on our website. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. So we're sliding into a conversation about media, the nature of media, how people have changed how they consume information over time. And you've been in some ways front and center to that for a long while. You were in broadcast radio journalism and now you got a podcast. That's a lot of change of form, right? But along that, I'm wondering what you've seen in changes to like the function of media over time as somebody who's been in the game for a pretty long time now.
2: Well, the big uh, difference you just touched on for us to some degree, that is we've all I, I don't know how what the future is of terrestrial radio, but I don't think it's very good. And I'm, I'm not speaking out of any sense of adversity. Uh, it was very yeah. good to me. Yeah. And I loved it. And uh, there are things I still champion about it. But here's the rub on this. When I moved from commercial radio, I realized how did somebody who was a major figure in commercial radio, I just had lunch with recently. So he was a program director and a station manager. And on the one hand, he had a lot of nice things to say about it the work I did over the years. And then he said something that was kind of, you know, like they say, when you give us, you take us away. He said, but you know, Michael, he said, one of the reasons for your success being ratings, ratings top for so long and everything, you didn't have great competition. <laughs> and to some degree, he was right, though. I mean, I had to concede he was right. I was doing a different type of radio, and it was a radio that offered more to more people than those commercial stations, which were completely overridden with commercials. And I realized people did not want to hear that kind of radio. Some people did, because that radio was based on controversy. In fact, one of the reasons I left commercial radio was I wasn't being controversial enough. I wasn't making people bang their dashboards. I got a station manager who said to me, I said, Michael, you know, if flatulence would bring more listeners in, then we play flatulence all day long. That's the purpose that we have is bringing in more listeners. That's our only purpose. Yeah. Well, NPR and public radio is more high-minded, more belief in journalism. But you've got two worlds now, in radio, and, in, in, and you've got a whole different world in terms of what the internet has brought to. Many people say, why listen to Father and Son podcasts, or why listen to Krasny's podcast, or why listen to the Billionaire podcast, when there's so much to choose from out there? I mean, the mind reels from all the content that's out there and all that you can choose from. But in terms of covering the news, we become so polarized that the idea of covering the news, which is what we did and what we championed and what we on I say on KQED became noted for and got high marks for and got the high numbers for, was that we took the news seriously and we try to present both sides. So as you just
0: said there, Michael, and a major issue in news these days is both sidesism. And this is just the presentation of two sides as equally valid, just because they both exist even if one is based on evidence and one is not. And at the same time, you were talking earlier about how you really enjoyed talking with people who had a different viewpoint from you and uh, getting into it with them. I would imagine exploring whatever evidence there was, exploring your perspective, putting a human face on something that can often start to feel a little dehumanized. And I'm wondering, how did you try to balance presenting different viewpoints or representing different perspectives without also falling into the trap of creating a lot of false equivalencies?
2: It's a good question and a very serious one to consider seriously. What I try to do is I try to, as you put it, present both sides. So if I'd have someone on, for example, who was an advocate for the Indian point of view with Pakistan, I'd make sure that I had someone on who represented the Pakistan point of view either later on or in that same program. And sometimes, and particularly with something as loaded as Israel and Palestine, I could actually have a stopwatch and there would be equal time and both narratives would be told. And I'd get off the air and somebody would say, you're a Zionist stooge, and somebody else would call in and say, you're a Palestinian puppet. It was always difficult to have that kind of balance. But when i get heat from both sides, I'd realize that I was to some degree accomplishing it because I'd like to challenge both sides and I'd like to hear both stories and give both stories an opportunity to be told. That's where producing becomes very important because if you get someone who is far too dominant, you have to shut that person up and it sounds like you're taking the other person's side and there's all of that that has to be seen into the mix and it's an equation that's not very easy to slice apart. I would also not only try with the producers to get that balance, but I had somebody on who even had a different point of view than I had i try to challenge myself and challenge the person as well. When I started out doing public radio, I'd have people on from the Hoover Institute, which at the time was a very Republican and conservative group of professors for the most part. It's, it's been more of a mix now. But I have people say, how can you put those fascists on here?" air? I mean, they were right-wing, some of them, but we didn't put on fascists. We put on people who had academic credentials. And, were scholars and had a different point of view than my largely leftist audience. And I had to kind of educate that audience to believe that to hear another side than your own gave you an important kind of use of tools or strategies or powers that you may not have known you had. That was the way I looked at it. And that's the way I kind of played that hand to use a poker metaphor for years. By the way, shout out to Rick Hansen and my agent who is a, who I play poker tournaments with, and is an excellent poker player, Amy Renner.
1: Forrest is an excellent poker player.
2: Now, that I didn't know.
1: Forrest routinely plays poker at a very high level. He put himself through the first couple years of college that way, doing online poker. Now he goes into uh, live situations, and he does pretty well. And I think about uh, that's another whole topic, is making decisions in a context of uncertainty because that's so central to life. And I've really wondered about the ways in which people who play competitive games at a high level that involve chance, wow, I just wonder how their decision-making gets better in everyday life, or if it doesn't. You know what I mean? (laughs) If just over here, they're really good at playing the odds and reading situations and updating their priors in a Bayesian sense and so forth, or if they only do that in that one area.
2: I think it's individual to individual. Um, yeah. I mean, you have to trust not only the opportunities as you see them, but what's practical and what's reasonable. Yeah. That's a weighing in of, you know, what your heart and your head may be saying, what your true self and your fake self may be saying. There's a lot of sifting and winnowing that goes on. The psychiatry, I realized wasn't for me. I wasn't, I tell people with interviewing, you have to be a good listener. But the reality is you also have to really ideally love something and be drawn to it and have the opportunities to do it. And that was more true for me for teaching and broadcasting than it was for psychiatry.
1: When I reflect on this conversation, which is definitely zigged and zagged, there's a kind of a through line, for me at least in it, which I'm probably not going to say it very well, has to do with balancing the value of, on the one hand, essentializing things and developing expertise about stuff and knowing stuff. Okay? While on the other hand, operating in a space of curiosity, uncertainty, not knowing, creative chaos, and recognizing the cloud-like insubstantial nature of all thoughts and things, both together. And I'm somehow reminded of, often I think about, Michael, the ways that we get captured by our strengths, We know our weaknesses, but it's our strengths often that capture us. For me as a kid, it was intellect, and I've had other strengths capture me, like fierce determination along the way, and they just capture us. And so it's particularly important to be careful about not being captured by our strengths. And that then goes to kind of a takeaway, Zen saying, always don't know. And how do we balance that? Because we have to know stuff. Do you want to fly a plane or be a surgeon or work in a factory? You got to know On the other hand, always don't know.
2: Yeah, I think uh, you know, Rick, that I wrote a book called Spiritual Envy, and it was about a lot of it was about questioning and being agnostic about as many things as you can be. By the way, if we've been zigging and zagging, it's been nonetheless fun and enlightening. And that's that's the number one criterion in my book. That's right. It's not
1: a critique.
2: No, but I love the fact that you found this through line because when I wrote Spiritual Envy, I realized I was asking a lot of questions that couldn't be answered. And I think that's a good attitude to have, to realize how impoverished your knowledge really is. Because the more knowledge you gain, the more bloody ignorant you realize you are. At least that's been my experience. The more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. So the epigraph to that book was Einstein saying, always question. That's kind of my attitude about life. But at the same time, we know how valuable our knowledge is. We live in a world of data now, I and mean, data sort of taken over our lives. It's, uh, I don't know if you've read Yuval Harari, who I'm very impressed with, uh-huh. Think a great deal of, and I've interviewed. Here he is saying, you know, uh, it's, it's going to be data. Our whole future yeah. is, even with AI, is, and particularly with AI, maybe, is grounded in data. So mm. it's important for me to know. It's important for people. Used to, when I was in commercial radio, they used to have a knowledge is power, was one of their PR lines, you know. Mm. They pay guys thousands of dollars to come up with something that's, just that plain and obvious, conspicuous even. But knowledge is not only power. Knowledge can lead to wisdom, and knowledge Mm. is something that can advance you in life. I mean, you know, there's some things that I'm woefully ignorant about, but I'm only seeking to find out more and to learn more.
0: So, knowledge is power, for sure, and that power is often experienced by us as confidence and comfort. And earlier we were talking about preparing for to have a conversation with somebody and how certainly I experienced early on when I was starting to do this that I would over-prepare. And I would over-prepare because it gave me a sense of confidence and it allowed me to deal with the anxiety that I felt going into a conversation that was often with somebody who knew a lot more about something than I did. And so I'm wondering for you, Michael, because we're talking about kind of balancing knowing mind with don't knowing mind here to, to put it a certain kind of way, like Did you ever have to deal with some anxiety around holding on to a certain amount of don't know? Was that a feeling that you dealt with, whether it was talking to people or just in your day-to-day life? And how did you do that?
2: Again, you're both certainly operating with good questions here and thoughtful questions. Well, I mean, you have to be prepared. but Sometimes the preparation and all the seeking of curiosity doesn't necessarily engender the kind of great performance you would like to have every time you do an interview, you must know that. And I would interview, for example, nuclear physicists, or I would interview people in areas that I didn't know a lot about. And the challenge for me was, how can I turn this into something where I can showcase this person's knowledge by asking the right questions? But there were times when I found myself, as you suggested for us, so well-prepared, and yet I couldn't be prepared enough. They used to say, for example, I talk about quantum mechanics with physicists. That would be part of the challenge. You know, I want to learn more and I want to also show that this person I'm fortunate enough to be talking to, that this person had a lot to share in the way of knowledge and I could be the force or the catalyst to bring that out. And the challenge was bringing it out so that a lay audience, and I, emphasis, I emphasize a lay audience, could understand it. Because you can't get too esoteric. Yeah, you can't get too into the fine grains. You know, you're not doing. I get into discussion with Harold Bloom. I have to remind myself: I'm not in a literature seminar here. I'm talking to someone with thousands of listeners who have to understand what he's saying. Can he talk to that lay audience? Can I get him to talk to that lay audience? It's a very challenging and motivating factors in what we do.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because for a while there, I thought that my job was to be knowledgeable. And it's actually not. My job is not to be a content expert, certainly on this platform. My job is to be a good translator. And it's to figure out how to put interesting ideas into language that is understandable, but also that allows those interesting ideas to be just as interesting as they are without being covered over by uh, either too much jargon or, or too much me not understanding them and therefore being unable to translate them. And that kind of like moving of the goalposts a little bit from needing to be really knowledgeable about something, to just kind of changing what I viewed my job as was really useful for me personally, and I, I think is something that can be taken into situations other than uh, broadcast journalism or running a podcast.
2: Almost every situation, in fact, you've just nicely outlined a, a whole trajectory. I mean, when I started mm. broadcasting, you know, I, I used to call it an educator's weakness. I wanted to show my students how much I understood yeah. what I was teaching yeah. and how much I knew. And, um, and that's easy to do if you're a lecturer. But the challenge is if you want interactivity, if you want to hear their voices, you have to challenge them and you have to bring them up. So I learned that lesson in teaching. I also learned it in broadcasting because you really have to get people talking. They want to call in. They want to be part of the interactivity that we offered in the show that I did. But also you want to interact and have a real conversation and dialogue with the person you're interviewing. I used to talk about this as a spectrum. I used to say, entertainers can bring a lot of themselves in to an interview. But when we do interviews, we want to get as much in the way of knowledge. And that's the high bar, knowledge. It's not entertainment, though it can be entertaining. We've had some good laughs here. But I went through that trajectory to some extent myself. I wanted initially to be so well prepared that I could educate the masses who are listening to me. And then it became more as a balance between what they have to say, what I have to say. And I said, there's a spectrum too. Oh, I mean, think of Chris Matthews. I used to say, joke with him and say, if you interview the Pope, you talk more than the Pope would talk, you know, and that's true. And he was a pretty devout And <laughs> <So. laughs>
1: You got him right where he lived. Unfortunately, we need to bring it to an end here. And there's something for me about a kind of form of human communicating that you've really demonstrated here Michael that's the antithesis of sound bites is just the opposite it's conversational it's how people i think spoke with each other when they were hunting and gathering especially while they were gathering wandering along hanging out just the un, the unfolding with this quality of don't always know right not always so Forrest talked a little bit about new forms of media. And, and you know, as you know, people have written books, things like Google is making us stupid. And just the ways in which there's something about our discourse styles with each other these days, the ways that young people communicate through texting rather than actually hearing each other's voices, let alone looking into each other's eyes. It's kind of alarming and it shapes cognition. It shapes the subtleties of our expectations implicitly of how the other person will be, or shapes our, our sense of other beings, turns them into superficial two-dimensional caricatures. And I want to, in a way, honestly, really express my gratitude to you as someone who's really been a champion of conversation. Anyway, I just think you're a model of that, and we need more of that in our culture today, and more valuing of it.
2: That's very generous of you, and thank you. with my gratitude for having a good high level, high discourse, intelligent conversation. I don't know how the internet and social media are changing our neural patterns, but I think they are. And But I do know with a podcast that people say the best way to have others find out about your podcast is to go on other podcasts. So yeah. I'm glad I had Rick Hansen on mine, and I'm glad that I'm on Rick and Forrest Hansen's podcast.
0: You bet. Thank you for doing this with us today, Michael. It's been really great. Thank you both. Today we had a great time talking with Michael Krasny. Michael was the longtime host of the KQED Forum and is now the host of a podcast, Grey Matter with Michael Krasny. And that's Grey Matter with an E and we'll link to it in the show notes for today's episode. We covered a lot of ground in this conversation. To take you behind the curtain a little bit, my internet was having a real bad day so Rick was doing a lot of the piloting for this one. And over the course of the conversation, we talked about everything from Shakespeare to Michael's relationship with his father, to how he got into broadcast journalism, to the new media landscape and how we can interact with it in healthier ways, and also some of the consequences of it, both for ourselves and maybe for the level of our public discourse altogether. The through line that Rick found was curiosity. How can we maintain our curiosity? How can we remain interested in what people say even when we don't agree with them, and how can we balance what we really do know, what we really can be confident in inside of ourselves, with maintaining a degree of don't know mind and accepting that there's a lot out there that we're never going to know. And alongside that, maybe accepting some of the difficult emotions that can arise for people when they go through that experience. I know speaking personally, it was really challenging early on in my uh, my podcasting career, which is sort of a weird phrase to say, but here we are, when I was talking to somebody and I just didn't feel like I, I had a great grasp of the material. I didn't feel like a content expert. I was going into the conversation with a lot of uncertainty about myself and my own knowledge. And over time, it became really helpful for me to get more clarity about What I knew, yes, but also what my role was on this podcast, it actually wasn't to be a content expert. My job was really to function as a translator, to take interesting ideas and to make them more approachable for people, and maybe to share how curious I am in them and how interesting I truly find them. And reframing things in that way just took a lot of the pressure off of me. And I think that we can really do that in other walks of life as well, right? We can allow our not knowing to be a positive, to be something that allows us to learn more actively from a situation, or maybe view things in a different light. And people tend to run into a lot of problems when they become calcified in how they think about something. And maybe there's a connection there of one kind or another to the extremely polarized media landscape that we're currently existing in, which includes a lot of siloing of people, right? And it feels like there is, in some ways, less interest than ever in hearing a viewpoint that isn't consistent with our own. And I wrestle with this a little bit personally. Uh, There are some viewpoints that I think are unreasonable and not just irrational, but fundamentally immoral, and are not pro-social, are not in alignment with human growth and flourishing, to use a little bit of flowery language. And those aren't necessarily viewpoints that I think that we should be doing a lot of work to put on our screen, even if it would be in the service of just getting another voice out there. And at the same time, there's a lot of value in being exposed to new ideas, and I certainly think in having our ideas challenged from time to time. I'm going to take a few things away from this conversation. The first that comes to mind to me immediately is continuing to be more okay with not knowing. For a long time in my life, I was allergic to not knowing. I defined myself almost entirely as being the one who knew And when I didn't know, I got real uncomfortable. And as you can imagine, this made me an absolute joy to be around at parties. But even today, as I've worked with that tendency a little bit, it can still emerge from time to time. And being in that space of don't-know-mind can still be a bit uncomfortable for me. And then, second, alongside that, to keep on looking for what I really am confident is true. What are the true values that I hold, and how do they influence how I see the world? What are the things that I think are not just situational, but really do have some kind of immutability beneath it all. Because I tend to be one of those people who is pretty pretty culturally relative, I guess, and tends to be a little oriented toward, well, that's my opinion, but maybe somebody else's this other opinion over there. And I think there's this really cool balance there, right? Curiosity, acceptance of other views and interest in what other people think. And then at the same time, alongside that, over time, searching more and more for what we deeply believe in. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you enjoy being well, you will probably love Michael's new podcast, Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. And if you've been listening for a while and you haven't subscribed yet, we would really appreciate it. If you've been listening and you would prefer to watch instead, well, you can find me on YouTube where we post all of the episodes of the podcast. That's Forrest Hansen on YouTube. And we also have the links in the show notes to all of our social media. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast, and for just a couple of dollars a month, you can support the show and receive a whole bunch of great bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.